Brandon Capital would have to be one of Australia's most well-known and well-respected VC funds. Its founding partner and managing director is Chris Nave, and he joins me on the program now. Chris Nave, welcome to VC Land. Thanks, Justin. Great to be here. How did Brandon Capital get started? Uh, that's, it's going to take us a long time to answer that question, Justin. But we, look, we first kicked off in around about 2007. I'd, I'd spent time working overseas in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and when I came back to Australia, uh, I joined uh, Melbourne Ventures, which is a commercialisation company, but also went on to the investment committee of a university fund called Uniseed. Um, and it was through that model that I got, yep. got to know a couple of the superannuation funds that were investing in the sector. Um, and fortunately enough for me, one of them tapped me on the shoulder sometime during 2006 and said, listen, you know, we like the stuff you're doing. If you, if you ever had an idea of your own, um, we'd be interested in talking to you. And, you know, and as they say, the rest is history. We, I sketched out um, almost almost uh, on, a, on a handkerchief or um, on a coaster a model called the MRCF, which is a model that we... Backlit envelope, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, Backlit envelope, thank you. Um, I sketched out a model called the MRCF, which is the Medical Research Commercialisation Fund, which is in many ways the, the key aspect of Brandon Capital's um, investment model, I guess. And that 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 concept was to bring together Australia's leading medical research institutes and leading hospitals into what we call a collaboration. And, and through that collaboration, we get first right to review the emerging discoveries coming out of those laboratories. Um, but also, in turn, we get to use that expertise to develop our own assets um, and also assist us in performing due diligence. And so that MRCF model now has over 50 medical research institutes across Australia and New Zealand, and actually also includes all the major departments of health in, in the states across Australia. Um, but through starting that, you know, I had a lot less grey hair in those days. And um, during that process, uh, rather, <laughs> rather wisely, um, the superannuation fund said, look, you know, we know a couple of guys up in Sydney uh, who have a, have a fair bit of experience in investing and we think, you know, we'd be great partners for you. And so I was introduced to, to Stephen Thompson and David Fisher and the three of us um, were the founders of what is now Brandon Capital. Um, and David, David has since mm -hmm. uh, spending more time uh, enjoying his farming property and, and still works as a venture partner for us and helps our startup companies. But he's he's doing other things now, and Stephen Thompson and I are the, are the managing directors. Okay, so I, I think you've you've basically answered this question, but I'll put it to you: what what would you say the specialty is then of brand and capital? What do you like to invest in? Yeah, so you know, as I touched on, we, we really like biotech or biomedical sciences, but but we're we run a fairly broad shirt, so that can also cover veterinary veterinary medicine um, and also ag biotech. But but our real bread and butter, and if you look at the backgrounds of our team, it really is in biotech, so drugs, medical devices, um, vaccines, and also platform or enabling technologies. Biotech's obviously been in the news a lot over the past twelve months. How has the COVID pandemic impacted upon brand and capital? Yeah, it certainly has put medical research and biotech in the spotlight. I, I, I think I think in a positive way, if I start with the positives and then I can talk a little bit about the impact, but, but from a positive perspective, I think um, the way in which the Australian biomedical community was able to respond to the COVID um, threat or the impact of COVID, I think was quite stunning. I mean, we were the first country to actually sequence the virus and then we shipped that all over the world 
uh, to enable the different mm. different countries to mm. work on their own vaccine, yeah. which I you know I think is quite stunning. Um, the ability of CSL to, to quickly pivot and develop a, develop manufacturing facilities to support the, the manufacturing um, of one of the vaccines, and then and then also you know the 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 coordination of the states to try and help with the lockdown. So you know I think I think it's done two things. One, it's shown the the capabilities that exist in our sector, um, but also the importance of actually having a thriving biomedical or biotech industry so that the country's positioned to respond to this. You know, it's one of the aspects that really did stand out, or one of the threats, I guess, during COVID was countries began stockpiling important medicines that are the mainstay of clinical care. Um, and certainly countries like Australia mm. had a few scary weeks there where we had, um, you know, lack of supply of some very important key anaesthetics and other other drugs. And, and it really highlighted the importance of self-sufficiency and where there may be gaps. Um, to turn to Brandon, um, look, look, COVID, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say COVID didn't post some challenges. So, you know, if you turn the clock back to the middle of March last year, we had over 10 companies, I think we had 11 yeah. that were running phase two um, multi-centre, multi-country trials um, around, around the globe. Um, by the third week of March, we were optimistic that, that maybe we'd be able to sort of shrink those studies but keep on going. By the end of March, it was absolutely clear that there was no way you could run a clinical program in Europe or the US. Uh, and so it did mean that we had to lay off staff very, very quickly to preserve capital across those portfolios. Um, and our decision was to, to move really yeah. quickly um, uh, to stem the flow, I guess, with the hope that once the COVID cloud clears, we'd be able to re-engage those teams. And, you know, I'm, I'm pleased to be able to say that in most cases, um, those teams are all back together again now and the, and the trials are, are progressing, progressively getting back up and running. It's an interesting point you raise about uh, the speed of innovation because if there is a criticism of the health industry more broadly is that the wheels of change, uh, particularly when governments get involved, move very slowly. And I think it was pretty much universal that the entire world sort of got out of the blocks quickly and started to really work together to try to, well, find a vaccine, but also innovate more broadly across the health sector. Oh, you're absolutely right. In fact, I, I, um, I was quoted in talking about this in one of our major financial newspapers a couple of weeks ago, but, you know, I, I think it'll be an absolute lost opportunity if we don't capture the level of government and industry coordination that led to, you know, two and, and more to come vaccines being not just developed, but created, developed, putting them right through their clinical and regulatory paths and, and right through to approval in the space of really less than 12 months, um, which is just stunning from a drug development perspective. Um, and and what it highlights is that if you do have the will of government uh, and government are willing uh, to work with industry, you can accelerate um, drug or vaccine development. And and, and I guess the, the pertinent point for me is that, you know, COVID you know, has been a a global disaster or global pandemic, as we all know. But but if you look at the deaths from COVID um, over the last 12 months, they still pale to insignificance when you compare the annual deaths from um, cardiovascular disease or cancer, um, for that matter. And so mm. gee, if only we could mobilise mm. government and industry uh, towards those diseases in the same way that we've mobilised against COVID, just imagine the impact we could have. So, so picking up on that, what, why do you think... That is the case then. What? Why isn't there the urgency 
to to go down heart disease and cancer with such vigor that was done with um, with COVID? Look, it's a really good question. And um, look, I think there are a number of factors. Obviously, COVID, you know, really did pose an immediate and present threat. Uh, it was something that burst onto the scene, as we know. Mm. Well, actually, probably in late 2019, it was being reported, uh, and it was growing rapidly. So it was a it was a, a very overt and clear threat, and the death rates early on were really quite high, which was alarming. Conditions like cardiovascular disease, you know, a, a silent progressive um, uh, diseases that create a number of comorbidities that just aren't as pronounced. Um, as as COVID was, but also as a society, we've learned to live with those. And so I think, you know, I think there are a, a myriad of complexities around those those conditions that that make it uh, more challenging. Um, but also the media pay less attention to it. I mean, you know, COVID, both industry and governments were really forced to move as quickly as they could because um, COVID nineteen had such incredible media coverage um, on on a twenty four hour news cycle. Uh, and that really put pressure on everyone to be seen to be doing something. If you look at the biotech sector from an investment point of view, if you talk to any any investor, probably a retail investor, most of the time it would be, well, stay away from biotech. It's too hard. It's too risky. Payoff is, you know, potentially only one in a hundred. Uh, it's just a crapshoot. What's for someone running a biotech focused fund? What's what's your response to that criticism that you hear from time to time? Well, a crapshoot is certainly not the expression I use when I'm trying to raise money from from my investors. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, um, the look, you know, I, I feel like this is a this is a question that gets asked a lot. Um, the, the difference, I guess, between the sort of retail investors that you're talking about and, and my organisation, you know, are, are really quite pronounced. So, you know, my team are all um, mm-hmm. medical doctors or PhDs in medicine. Um, so we've all specialised in the field. Yep. And then we've all worked in industry, be it in startup companies or global pharmaceutical companies, um, uh, developing drugs or vaccines or medical devices. And so, um, you know, we understand uh, the path and what it takes, but we also understand the challenges. Um, there's no doubt that, that biotech is high risk, but that's no, actually no different to, to mining exploration companies. The difference is, you know, a retail investor will, will hear about the latest biotech discovery. Some mate will tell them about it over lunch uh, and they'll invest in it. And it, it might be one, um, they're only a biotech investment or they may only make two biotech investments. And, and then if those investments don't work out, then of course it, it, it creates negative sentiment towards the sector. Um, if my portfolio thesis but to only make two investments in biotech I, I think I, the, the odds would be stacked against me as well um, and so my job as a professional manager mm. is to give our investors exposure across a large portfolio of companies um, with deep knowledge and technical due diligence that goes into those investment decisions and and I often say you know I, I can't pick exactly which one of those investments that we make will be the one that you know does 20 30 40 times our money but I know that for every 10 that we do, um, more than half of them have the chance of doing that. And so that, that portfolio exposure means that, you know, we're able to generate sustainable long-term returns for our investors. And we've been doing that now for, for 13 years. Okay, so let's let's run through some of the companies that are in your portfolio. Here's a, here's a chance to give them a bit of a plug. 
it's a so this is a this is always a fraught discussion. So we have about thirty five active companies in our portfolio, and so <laughs> and whichever one I choose, it means I've, I've forgot. It means that I don't that I don't like the other child. Um, so uh, look, it's a <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting question. But you know, I, I guess I could talk you know about um, perhaps some of the ones that got interesting stories behind them. So. Um, and, and perhaps because they're fun at the moment because exciting things are happening in them. You know, it, it, an interesting one is a company called Polyactiva, which is a, a technology that came okay. out of CSIRO and the Bionic Eye Institute um, and also the Centre for Research for Eye Research Australia, so CIRA, um, at the Eye and Ear Hospital here in Melbourne. And, and that technology actually first came to us um, as a polymer, uh, like a, a film polymer within which they could impregnate drugs and particularly um, antibiotics, and the plan from the from the company's perspective was to coat implantable prostheses with that film. So that if you're getting your hip or your knee replaced, um, if there was a risk of it, well, there is a risk of infection, albeit low. Um, once you'd implanted it, this film would slowly erode, releasing the antibiotic, and so if there were any bacterial infection um, as a result of the surgery, it would be cleared by that film. Now, whilst that sounds like a really clever idea. Um, because the incidence of in post-operative infection is so low, you know, we quickly worked out you'd need to do, you know, almost a 60,000 patient study to show that you're better than standard of care. Um, but we looked at the technology that they had and recognised that it had, you know, really quite unique attributes that lend itself for delivery of drugs to the eye. Um, and so, you know, Polyactive has been on a, on a journey really over the last um, seven or eight years. Um, pivoting that technology um, to create uh, injectable implants that slowly release um, uh, drugs for, for treating eye disease. And, you know, the company's now in phase two clinical studies and, and you know, it's fair to say we're pretty excited by the data we're getting and, and it's there's almost no, no question now that Polyactiva mm -hmm. has the, the global leading ocular delivery platform for, for delivering drugs. And, you know, we've, our first study are in glaucoma patients, you know, the second leading cause of blindness of blindness globally um, and we're showing that from a single injection yep. um, patients get up to six months uh, of therapy without the need to take their eye drops anymore um, which is pretty stunning um, so that's a amazing that's that's an exciting mm. company um, that's a good one yeah global kinetics corporation if we go to something completely different so global kinetics is a is a digital health company that's developed a an algorithm um, that actually measures and monitors Parkinson's disease, um, and and that company okay. came out of the, the Floor Institutes of Neurosciences here in Melbourne. Um, it really was initially a concept. So with Parkinson's disease, um, the disease slowly progresses. Um, normally, from diagnosis to death is about fourteen years, and there's not a lot you can do to shorten or lengthen that. Um, but but the therapies that are available can really improve the quality of life through that period. The challenge with Parkinson's disease is that um, mm. it changes, a patient's experience changes um, within a day and from day to day, and, and they only turn up to see their neurologist, you know, every three or four months, and the neurologist only gets to see what they're like in the waiting room, yeah. and, and the patient often is not very good at, at providing an account of what, what their last two or three months has been like. And so the, this wristborn device captures all that data and provides the um, neurologist with a very clear right. algorithm that enables yeah. them to uniquely tailor the medication and, and you know the impact is just profound you know we have you know lots and lots of anecdotes of patients that you know had to stop working because the disease was getting on top of them 
they got access to this device, they're therapy approved, and now they're back in the workforce. Um, so it's really quite stunning. That's that's been now been used in over fifty thousand um, tests and um, is being commercialised now throughout Europe and the US um, with a little bit of activity in Asia. And that that product yeah. is still being assembled here in Melbourne and and shipped globally, which is which is a pretty good story. Terrific. And then um, you know again we've got lots of portfolio companies, so I'm. I'm my question, I'm getting myself in hot water calling out companies here, but you know, another one that's pretty exciting for us at the moment. <laughs> it's okay. Another one that's pretty exciting is a company called Serta Therapeutics. Um, Serta's developing novel drugs that target actually a novel switch in the body that hasn't been drugged before, but increasingly this switch is being implicated in, in, in inflammatory and fibrotic diseases. Um, and so, you know, if we Mm-hmm. We take that a step further. The underlying cause of a lot of chronic conditions is fibrosis or, or scarring. And so kidney disease, heart disease, lung disease, organ scarring is, is often an important precursor to the manifestation of those conditions. And, and CERTA's drugs target this key switch. Um, and in a range now of, of, you know, really advanced studies has shown that it um, stops the development of both the inflammation and the fibrosis. Um, What's exciting is CERTA's drugs are actually um, novel analogues of an old drug that is actually used in China and, and Korea, but for which, but but a drug that hasn't been able to get approved in Western world because it's toxic to your liver. Uh, and so CERTA took that drug and developed right. novel analogues that are more potent um, and without the safety issues. And and now we're going into you know some large phase two studies in. Um, in both kidney disease and in an orphan indication called scleroderma. So that's, that's pretty exciting because we have, you know, really high expectations of a positive outcome because of the knowledge of this older drug and its efficacy in those conditions in earlier studies. It's a great snapshot of some of the companies you've got um, under management at the moment. So is it fair to say you invest in a, in a mix of private and listed companies with with potentially more of a focus on private companies. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we are predominantly uh, a private company investor, but but we have invested in public companies. And you know, right now, um, you know, we have we are going through a process of looking at particularly ASX listed um, companies to see whether there's some opportunity yeah. and some value there. Um, and similarly, in the US, you know, we've taken companies public to the Nasdaq, and we're actually in the process of preparing two companies at the moment. Um, to, to go public on the NASDAQ as well in, in the next 12 months. So, so you know, we do do um, public and private, but more often we do private to public um, is probably um, where our sweet spot is. Um, you know, one aspect of our model is in, in, many, in many cases, we are the first investor in, into an asset and then we'll follow it all the way through to, to an exit. And where do you source all your deal flow from? Obviously, it'd be obviously you're very connected. You're you're working with medical institutes. There's a massive network. Uh, I presume it's it's more than just waiting for the next investor deck to roll into someone's inbox. <laughs> I, you know, I think it's funny. I think that the, the picture of venture capitalists is that that's what we do. We sit up in a in a high tower somewhere drinking coffee and lattes and waiting for the for the, the ready made management team. Right. Got one. <laughs> um, so, so now the model that I described before, the Medical Research Commercialization Fund, you know, there's no question that that is a big source of our pipeline. Um, so, you know, you look at the expenditure yes. of medical research in Australia and the capabilities of those research institutes and hospitals. Um, we get lots of early stage innovation coming out of those groups. 
but also because of their prominence globally, a lot of those organisations are actually working with US and European biotech companies on the development of their assets. And so through that, we also get access to deal flow um, through those collaborations. And and then I guess finally, you know, as, as we've grown as a fund manager and had success, um, you know, we've, we've moved companies to the US. We have, I think we have probably seven or eight companies in the US at the moment, a few in Europe. And, and through that, you get access you start to develop relationships and, and co-investment relationships with other uh, large VC funds. And so through those funds as well, um, we get a fairly steady stream of deal flows. So you know, probably like most managers, once once you're established and you've got a good network, um, access to deal flow um, is not a challenge, but finding those really quality investment opportunities yes. that we want to put money in is, is always the challenge. It's going to be the, the perennial challenge of any investment. Okay, so let's let's get into that then. Um, what is the process you use and your team uses by uh, assessing a deal, working through the DD, and, and finally making that decision to write a check and invest? Yeah, that's a that's a you know again a, a, a broad question that I could spend five minutes or an hour answering. Um, you know, the, 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 the tr- my answer is actually going to be really quite boring. So when you when you comes to investing in biotech or, or medtech, um, you know they have very technically oriented opportunities um, and so our due diligence really is is quite methodical so so obviously the first thing we do is is look at the technology and get a really good understanding of the technology and how that technology positions itself against its competitors and those competitors can be both you know products that are already on market um, but more often than not they're going to be competing companies with yep. assets that are still in development um, you know, we obviously spend time looking at, at that competitive position, their intellectual property position, and how that sits alongside those competitors. The duration of life left on that in, that that patent position. You know, is there enough life left by the time you get the, the yep. product approved? We look at the development path. To make it worthwhile. Yes, yeah. that's pretty important. We look at the development path. You know, the regulatory path, and and also very importantly, and this has become increasingly important really over the last decade getting a really good understanding of what the reimbursement environment is going to be for that product. And, 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 and by that, understanding what the US, both the public and private insurers will pay for, for access to the product and also in Europe. You know, and that's something often that management teams in Australia um, may not yet have done the work. There's, there's an assumption that if I've got a great technology in Australia that works in patients, then my job's done. And that's just not the truth anymore. You, you, know, you really need to be able to show a path through to durable and sustainable revenues that that makes sense from an investment perspective. And then I guess finally, um, that's all on the technology side and the company side and the, you know how much it's going to take in terms of capital to get to that exit as well. We make sure we can afford investments that we're getting into. Um, but then, of course, we look at the management team and the entrepreneurs behind it. Um, and, and, you know, we, don't, we certainly don't look for a cookie-cutter um, CEO or entrepreneur because they're all different. But we're, we're looking for people that we think we can work with. Mm. And what, what I often say to, to CEOs or entrepreneurs that are bringing technologies to it, you know, when I get to have a quiet moment with them, I'll, you know, I'll just explain to them that, that you know, if we're excited by their technology, another aspect that's important to us is the team and, and, and remind them of the fact that, that in most cases we work with entrepreneurs and management teams for six or seven years, um, but often it's more than 10 years. And so, so whilst the technology matters and the investment proposition matters. Also what matters is the fact that we think that those that management team are honest uh, and that they're going to stay the course for what's going to be a pretty long journey. You're in for the long haul. Yeah. 
Yep. And do do you do you find that most of the companies in which you take a stake are run by either scientists, medical doctors, PhDs? There is there is some medical formal medical training behind them. And if and if so, do do they necessarily make the best CEOs? <laughs> Um, they're, they're both really good questions, and, and I suspect you already know the answer I'm going to provide. So, so look, I think um, <laughs> it's rare in the Australian environment that you get a company with a great technology with a fabulous CEO and a ready-made, ready-made management team. And that's actually not a criticism of our industry. It just it, it's, um, it represents the infancy of the biotech industry still here in Australia. Um, so, yes, it's probably true that on more occasions than not, the the, the lead entrepreneur or the or the CEO um, is a, is a medical doctor or has a PhD as a scientist, um, and it's probably less common that they're not technically trained. Um, but we that doesn't actually put us off. Like we we see very much our role in addition to providing capital um, to help provide. Um, that management support to those entrepreneurs. And so in many cases, my team will uh, assume the role of in- interim CEO or CFO or, you know, interim dog's body to help to help those uh, entrepreneurs progress their product through important milestones. But also then we'll use our international network when, it's, when the time is right um, to help um, recruit the appropriate, appropriate expertise for each stage of the business. And the reality with, with biotech is that, you know, as the technology goes along its development journey, the skills that you need this year will be very different to the skills you need next year. And so you need to be flexible and and willing to, to move people in and out. Um, having said that, you know, one, one strategy that our firm has always spoken to and, and, and we've always um, followed through with it is to try and make sure that that founding inventor, that founding entrepreneur is still still with us, smiling part of the team, when we're selling a business or we're launching the product on market. And we feel that's really important. Um, acquirers or partners always want to come and meet the person who was there at the very beginning. And so so that's why those durable long-term relationships are so important. And how many companies do you uh, have you invested in that are, that are currently active in uh, in the brand and capital fund? Yeah, I should know the exact number. I think right now we have about 34 or 35 active portfolio companies. Um, and I think overall yeah. we've we've invested in around about forty eight um, over the life of Brandon. You know we've had yeah, okay. we've had some nice successes. We've also had failures, and and we often, um, you know, part of our job, and I often say this to the team, part of our job is to fail things fast and inexpensively. And the ones the ones that the ones that don't fail are the ones that end up becoming mm. a success. Um, and that's and that probably really holds true and comes back to that point that I made earlier that that to be successful in biotech you need you need a portfolio that gives you broad exposure to the sector, um, but then you you need to be really diligent about the assets that that you're no longer continuing to support. If you try and support all of them, you'll you'll certainly fail. Uh, and so you need to really pressure test or stress them as they go through the development programs um, to to fail them fast and fail them inexpensively. And that's and that's been something that we've been reasonably successful at doing. It's not to say that at some point in the future we won't have a late state as- asset fall over that just comes to the territory but um but to date we've been reasonably successful at making sure we fail things fast and then the ones that that go on to be successful we really concentrate the, the, the investment around them and for those that are listening are there are there opportunities to invest 
in in brand and capital? Um, look, not at the moment uh, is the is the frank answer. An investor should never say no to, to fundraising. Um, you know, we're we're fortunate in that our yep. Yep. we're on our fifth fund now. Um, our our returns have really been strong over the last you know thirteen years um, across those funds, and so you know our last yes. fund that we raised um, in two thousand and nineteen and late two thousand and nineteen was was fully subscribed by our existing investors. Um, we do, though, um, yep. we are looking to, to, to raising a new fund um, next year. Um, and, and as part of that, we actually are looking at, okay. at having a, a, a sidecar um, fund alongside the superannuation fund potentially um, for that fund. And so, you know, we do get a lot of inbound interest from family offices and from institutional groups. Uh, and so we are thinking how we make a broader offering um, to those investors. Well, we shall watch with interest. It's been great catching up with you today on uh, the VC Land podcast. Chris Nave from Brandon Capital, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Justin. Great to spend time with you.